Hi there. This is Neil Satin, the host of Relationship Alive. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning into the podcast and to let you know you are not alone. In fact, there are thousands of other people listening, and so I created a spot on Facebook called the Relationship Alive Community, where we can actually gather to talk more about the topics covered here on the Relationship Alive podcast. Every so often, I'll even throw in a special offer or two as well. You can search for the Relationship Alive Community on Facebook, or text the word TOGETHER to the number 33444, and I'll send you a link to take you right to the community on Facebook. Looking forward to seeing you there. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. What does it take to have a relationship that can thrive well into your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond? What are the best ways to find a conscious relationship or to shift your current relationship into a place of being energized for what's possible? And have you ever wondered why it can be so easy to blame someone else in an argument? And if there's any way to eradicate criticism and blame from your relationship once and for all? Today's guest is Gay Hendricks, co-author with his wife Katie of the classic book Conscious Loving, as well as the new book, Conscious Loving Ever After, How to Create Thriving Relationships at Midlife and Beyond. Along with his wife, Gay is one of the experts on how to have relationships that fit into the new paradigm for love. Relationships that continue to grow and be a source of inspiration, both within the partnership, but also for the communities surrounding the relationship. He has been a leader in the field of relationship transformation for over 45 years and has appeared on Oprah, 48 Hours, CNN, and today, he's here on Relationship Alive. We're going to cover all the questions that I just posed and more, and give you a chance to win a signed copy of Gay's new book, Conscious Loving Ever After. All you have to do to qualify for that is to visit neilsatin.com slash gay, G-A-Y, and download the show guide, or text the word PASSION to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. So, without further ado, Gay Hendricks, thank you so much for being here with us on Relationship Alive. My pleasure, Neil. It's always uh, great to talk about this particular subject. I've been fascinated by relationships pretty much all my life, so I'm eager to uh, talk about whatever you'd like to focus on. Great. Well, your book is so rich with information and warning up front, even though I've tried in past episodes to cover everything, there's just no possible way that we're going to do it here. So I encourage everyone to 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 get the book because it's a great uh, sequel to Conscious Loving, which we talked about uh, probably about a month or so ago here on the show. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about a little bit about your evolution from Conscious Loving to Conscious Loving Ever After, and, and why you felt there was a need for this new book. Yes, well, the original Conscious Loving laid out a way of being in relationships that really hadn't been described before, where you're transparent with your emotions, you're open to your emotions, you're also willing to make big commitments to things like um, committing to taking responsibility when the stress is on, committing to um, being honest with your partner, committing to 
focus on relationship as a spiritual path, to really take it on as a path to enlivenment and enlightenment. And so we taught seminars for, gosh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years based on that. And then we realized that there was this large segment of our population that was in relationships age 40 and up. And we've had now couples come to our offices or our seminars up into their 80s even. And so we have this large section of people from 40 to 80 that really hadn't been, you know, a a separate path hadn't been laid out for them. And there are certain things that happen at midlife that don't happen earlier in life, things that become more important after the age of 40 that weren't so important beforehand. And so as we began to work with couples in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s primarily, we realized there was this whole different thing that needed to happen with them. And so we began to work on Conscious Loving Ever After, and it's been kind of an incubation now for, oh gosh, at least 10 or 15 years. And finally last year, I put myself down in the seat and uh, said, okay, it's time to write it. And so Katie and I um, wrote uh, that book, which just came out. And so we... uh, we wrote it primarily, well, you know, we're our own best customers, first of all. So everything we teach in our seminars and our books are things that we personally found to be valuable here in our own relationship. And we just celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary. So we've had a long period of time to try out a lot of different ideas and things. And so we found that there are certain things that you need to know about midlife relationships that aren't so important up until the age of 40. So that's that's why we really, there's 70 or 80 million people out there just in North America alone who are in relationships after the age of 40 and, and are also single sometimes after the age of 40. So how does a single person in their 40s, 50s, 60s go about creating a new relationship that's based really on what their um, heart wants rather than what society is telling them to do? So that's really the primary driver behind us writing the new book. Yeah, and you know, I was surprised pleasantly as I've been more in communication with my audience to find out how many people are in their 40s, 50s, 60s on up, um which I I wouldn't have predicted um off the bat, but it's been um it's been really great for me to chat with those people and to recognize that they did need something more than what was out there in the traditional relationship literature for them. So all the more reason why I'm so excited to have you here on the show and, and why I think your book is really doing an important service in the world. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Um, I'm wondering, um, actually one thing that we could talk about quickly, and this is, more toward the end of your book, but you talk about the challenge of finding conscious partnership. And honestly, this is something that a question that's been raised by everyone um, who's single that's contacted me is that that question of, you know, I love what you're doing with the show and talking about conscious relationships. And yet, how do I find a person who's really going to meet me in that way? So I'm wondering if we could just start with talking about that a little bit. Well, let me start. This hadn't occurred to me till just this moment when you asked the question, but it might be good to start with how I, as a single person, went about creating my relationship with my wife, Katie. 
also great. known as Kathleen uh, on the front of the books. It usually has her official name, Kathleen, but we call her Katie around the house. And so it's a template for how you might go about manifesting a conscious relationship. So in December 1979, I had occasion to sit down kind of in the corner of my little cabin that I lived in at the time out in Colorado. It was a um, beautiful little two-bedroom cabin. And so I got inspired to sit down and ask myself what I really wanted in relationship because I just had an argument with a woman that I'd been kind of in an on and off relationship with for five years. And we kept having until a particular day, I hadn't realized that we were having the same argument over and over again. It just seemed like we argued a lot. But one day um, there in 1979, I realized, wow, the arguments are always the same. We keep repeating the same thing. And so I had some homework to do. So I, I went back to my cabin there and I sat down on the corner like when I have something serious to think about. I usually sit down on a cushion on the corner and just kind of think about it for a while. And as I realized that, I realized I'd messed up every relationship I'd ever been in by doing two or three things wrong that just eventually caused problems. And usually the other person was doing it too. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't the only guilty party, but I, what I realized was in every relationship I'd ever been in, one of the things that I frequently did was not be honest about certain things, usually my feelings. Like I, I, you know, if the person said, what are you feeling inside? I just didn't really know how to answer that very well, you know? So I would say I'm fine. And, <laughs> but I realized I wasn't honest about my feelings. I didn't communicate it when I was angry or I didn't communicate about it well when I was sad or scared or whatever it was. I was just like out of touch with that particular aspect of myself. So I realized sitting there on the floor, okay, if I'm going to create another, uh, a real relationship that thrives over time, I need to make a major commitment to being completely honest and transparent with what was going on inside me. Mm. So that was number one. Number two, I realized I messed up relationships time after time by when arguments came up, I would go for the victim position and blame the other person. Instead of taking responsibility for whatever it was, I would go into blame. And I didn't know all the research then, but now, of course, there's been 30, 40 years of research on the destructive power of blame and criticism in relationships. And it's one of the number one reasons people leave relationships is they just don't, they get tired of the criticism. And so I realized that what if I could fix that? What if instead of when the stress got on, instead of blaming, I would just take responsibility for whatever was coming up and then let that be an invitation to the other person to take responsibility for it? Because things are never one person's fault or the other. Uh, you've got to have, in any situation, you've got to have, if there's blame and criticism, there's a criticizer, but the other person, the criticizee, has to be willing to take that criticism. So what I wanted to do was create something that didn't have any blame or criticism associated with it. Mm. And so I realized that was number two. And the number three thing that got me into trouble in relationships was 
when I wasn't feeling creatively engaged inside, when I wasn't working on something I was excited about or something that opened up me to my creativity, I would take it out on the relationship. And I was in relationship with this uh, particular person, Carol, on and off for five years. And that was a frequent issue in our relationship. One or the other of us, we were both very creative people, but when we would be out of touch with our own creativity, we would always find something wrong in the relationship. And so I, that was my first realization that when people aren't creatively engaged, when people aren't excited about being alive on the creative level inside themselves, they'll look for some reason to blame outside. And so that was the story of a lot of our relationship conflicts that happened over and over again. And so I had this hour of sitting on the floor there in my little cabin, kind of, you know, pondering these things and thinking about them and figuring them out. And I was 34 years old at the time. So I wasn't a young sprout by any means. I, I had a lot of relationships that happened in my 20s and early 30s, and then this big relationship with this woman, Carol. And so um, I realized, in a one way, I felt a despair inside that I it took me so long to figure these things out. Mm. I think one of the big things that single people have to confront is that sense of despair inside. Some part of them has given up on having the kind of relationship they really want. So first of all, I, I recognize uh, recommend that people really welcome that despair to open up to it, to make friends with it, because it doesn't have to be there. It'll clear up, but it'll sit there with you in your chest until you open up to it and kind of acknowledge it if it's there. And so I had this kind of despair inside. So I acknowledged that, but then I was sitting there on the on the cushion and I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is just craft a request to the universe for a certain type of relationship. Uh, you know, a religious person might, you know, call that a prayer or asking God for something, but I, I've never been particularly religious. I kind of have a spiritual sense, but I, I'm not particularly a religious person. And so I think of the universe kind of as my God. And so I said, why don't I just put this prayer or manifestation request out to the universe about what I actually want? And then and so I, I did that. I figured, okay, what I want is a relationship where both people are completely honest. I want a relationship where both people take responsibility instead of blaming when things come up. And I want a relationship where both of us are creatively engaged and so that we don't take it out on each other when we're not creatively involved. And so I made a big commitment to my own creativity and I invited a person who was that passionate about her creativity. So all of this happened within this hour that I was sitting on the cushion. And so at the end of that, I, I just told the universe directly what I wanted. And then I said something else in my mind, which I think was the clincher. I said, if it's not in the cards for me to have that kind of relationship, okay, I'm willing to be alone. Mm. But I tell you this, I'll never settle for less. So don't bother sending me any substandard, <laughs> substandard <laughs> material. Let me have it all or nothing. So 
a month later, I walked into a room. There was about 50 people in it. And I saw this incredibly gorgeous woman across the room. And I thought, oh boy, I hope she's single. And I got to figure out some way to go make up a conversation with her. So anyway, just to shorten the story a little bit, uh, we ended up talking to each other. And in our very first conversation, we had this wonderful conversation where I said, I got to tell you what I just figured out a month ago, that I only want a relationship where both people are honest. I only want a relationship where both people take responsibility. And I only want a relationship where both people are committed to their creativity. So on those terms, would you like to go out for coffee with me? <laughs> Beautiful. Took her about 15 seconds. To, <laughs> her eyes kind of rolled back in her head. You know, and, uh, and then finally she came back and she said, how about lunch? And so she took it even further. So uh, I've been with her, uh, spiritually connected to her ever since then. And as I uh, said, we've known each other 35 years and have uh, just celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary. Wow. What an amazing story. And, and I love how you distilled not only the, the qualities that you were looking for, but also that, that willingness to, to be alone and to not, not settle. Um, that's a really strong message to be, to be sending out into the world and to have the world reflect back to you. I really, uh, I really appreciate you seeing that because I think it was such an important part of the whole picture. Um, I, I call it cracking the whip on the universe, where you say, okay, this is what I want, and I, I will not settle for anything less. And so I think that heightens the manifestation power of whatever it is you want to create. So I've become a big believer. You know, this is a, a direct message to all of your single community. I've become a big advocate for taking that hour or whatever it takes, 10 minutes or whatever it takes to sit down and really get quiet and ask yourself, what is most important to me in my close relationships? And I recommend that you first start with three. We call it the three absolute yeses and the three absolute no's. That you sit down and you figure out what are the three absolute most important things you want in a relationship. And then you also put in the three things that you absolutely don't want or don't want to create again. <clears throat> For example, when I did that um, in 1979, I hadn't figured out yet the whole absolute yeses part, but I'd figured out the noes part because. Uh, I had an early marriage to someone who, unbeknownst to me, had a lot of addictions. And I didn't discover um, her main alcohol addiction until after I had gotten into relationship with her. <clears throat> because for me, I grew up in a family where alcohol wasn't really a big deal. People would have you know wine at a restaurant or something, but I never saw anybody drunk or anything like that. And um, so I've always been a moderate drinker. I like a beer after I play golf or a glass of wine at a restaurant, but I've managed to get through uh, seven decades here without ever being drunk. So I've, uh, anyway, I had a pretty moderate approach to addictions at the time. And I just overlooked the fact that this person um, 
I mean, she and her mother would get drunk and scream at each other, you know, and I'd never seen anything quite like that. <laughs> and so it was a big wake up for me. So I put out a big absolute no. I said, I do not ever want to get in a relationship again with somebody who's ruled by their addictions. And so that became a big absolute no. But the absolute yeses part, I hadn't really figured out. So I recommend to all single people that you sit down and you figure out both of those things, the three absolute yeses, what you really, really want, but make sure you also include the things you really don't want too. Because I think if you can create at least three of each, you've kind of given the universe a good picture of what you want delivered to you. I'm curious along those lines, um, because this is actually making me think back to when my marriage was ending and and I, I made a list like this and and that list, I ultimately had to change it um, after I after my marriage did end um, and revisit it because it was easy in the context of a relationship that wasn't working to to articulate, well, I definitely don't want this because this is exactly what I'm experiencing right now. That's hard. And, and I definitely want these things, which are the opposite of what I'm experiencing right now. So, and I'm bringing this up because there are other people listening to this show who are in relationships and some people are in thriving relationships and some people are in not so thriving places. So what would you offer someone who sits down, they're in a relationship, they make their list of three, and it really scares them about whether they're going to find that in the relationship that they're in currently. Well, I think you need to acknowledge all of your feelings that come up in the process. So, for example, when you first make a big statement to the universe about what you really want, it's very likely to bring up some fear. Because you've spent a whole lifetime not having that and then to be bold enough to request that the universe fulfill this dream of yours, that's a very bold move for people to make. And so it's very natural that it's going to bring up some fears. It's also going to bring up probably some sadness and despair about things that didn't happen in past relationships. <clears throat> I mean, I feel sad. My daughter's grown up now, but for example, I feel sad sometimes still to this day about how unconscious I was when she was growing up, you know, when she was born four, five, six, ten years old. In that era, I wasn't as conscious as I am now. And so I think when you think about what you really want in a close relationship, whether it's with your kids or with your spouse or with your own parents or whoever you're close to, I think one of the things you have to acknowledge is the sadness or despair about what hasn't been there in the past, you know, the, the trouble that's been there, the pain that that relationship has caused. <clears throat> because one of the things that I think is a human misunderstanding is a lot of people think that there are two faucets, like one faucet is your good feelings and one faucet is your unpleasant feelings. And the idea is to turn up the good feeling faucet and to turn off the bad feeling faucet, but it doesn't work that way because all feelings come out of the same faucet. They're mm. all the same. And, and the faucet is marked awareness. And the label on the faucet says awareness. It's not good or bad or hot or cold. It's awareness. And you turn up the volume 
you turn up the flow by turning up your awareness, you become more aware of your anger, your sadness, your fear, your love, your excitement. All of those things come out of the same place. And so we need to open our hearts to all of our feelings, not just to the feelings that we want to feel, but the feelings that we don't want to feel, because the ability to love the unlovable in ourselves is what makes you progress spiritually in life. And to have a good relationship, too, you need to be consciously in a process of opening up to loving yourself more at the same time, because the act of loving yourself more opens up more space for you to open up love for the other person. Yeah, that's a perfect point because so many people, I think, feel like, well, I've tried everything to get my partner to change, <laughs> when in reality, what they haven't done is turn the attention on themselves and find those places where they don't have compassion for themselves or where they're in shame or where there's a, a need within them that they haven't figured out how to meet for themselves. So they're just constantly relying on other people to meet that need for them. Well, that's a very good point because typically what happens is people get into relationships oftentimes to get another person unconsciously to love part of themselves that they haven't learned to love yet in themselves. So, and I think I did that earlier on my relationships where I didn't know anything about my feelings. And so I expected the other person <laughs> to not have them either <laughs> because I didn't have any. Yeah, but, or they had to feel them all for you since you weren't feeling them yourself. That, that's a good point, too, because I was, at the very beginning anyway, a very intellectual person. And so I kind of processed everything through my mind, whether things made sense or not in my mind. And I was always judging and evaluating them from a mental perspective. But feelings can't be dealt with that way. They have to be dealt with by opening your heart to them. Partly it's about opening your mind to them, but you need to also open your heart to them because feelings are something that happen on the physical level. You know, it's down in your belly where you feel your fear, and it's up in your back and neck where you feel your anger, and it's up in your chest where you feel your sadness. And so you, you've got to be, befriend your body as you go about the act of befriending your feelings. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's a great thing that you talk about in, um, in your chapter on presencing, which is all, it's all about being in the moment with yourself and, and with your partner uh, as a vehicle for really getting in touch with what you are feeling is, is finding those places in your body where you're, where you're holding a feeling and letting those places speak. Yes. Well, first of all, my appreciation for being one of those rare interviewers who's actually read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I it's important to me to to actually understand what we're talking about, so that um, so that we can get below the surface, and and I think that's something my audience really treasures as well. And I I like to dig enough out of the book so that they see, wow, there's a ton in this book, and so it's not like ruining the need to go read it. In fact, I think it makes it even more enticing to see, like, wow, there's so many gems, and and I can tell because. I feel like there's already so much of value that that we've discussed already, and and I still have a huge list. So, we're, and we're not going to cover half these things, like I said in the beginning. So, we were talking about that um, 
that ability to get compassionate with yourself and, um, and to be willing to do the work yourself, uh, that you might be externally demanding from your, from your partner. And, but before that you've decided, well, nothing's working to actually take that moment to really do this work. So the internal work that you were talking about for singles to do is still really helpful for people in relationship to do to get clarity on top of turning those things inward and asking, you know, like I'm looking at your list, the essential three of um, being honest and being free of blame and being really creative. And so shining that light on yourself and saying, you know, am I being fully honest with myself? Am I, how much am I blaming or being critical of myself? And, and how much am I honoring my creativity, which actually leads me to a question for you um, about like the the very first thing that you talk about in your book, which I think was is so valuable, and especially in the context of it being like the utmost important thing to commit to in relationship, and it's not just ex- the experience of fully experiencing your capacity for love, but it's also fully experiencing your capacity for creativity. So I'm wondering if you can talk for a moment about why that's so important to, to be honoring your creativity. Yes. Well, the um, Harvard developmental psychologist, Eric Erickson, broke life down into decades. And he said that each decade has its own challenge. And what he said about midlife really stuck in my mind. But when I read it, of course, I was in my 20s and it didn't fully compute to me until I was up in my 40s and then up into my 50s. And that was that at midlife and beyond, all the way up through the end of your life, you've got a daily choice between creativity and stagnation. And when I got up into my 40s, I realized how true that is, because at the time I was, I was a university professor, but then I took one day a, a week to do private practice. And so a lot of my practice were professionals like lawyers or accountants or doctors of medicine or somebody that was at midlife. And so what I found over and over again is that those people were in pain because they had sacrificed their own creativity to fulfill some role in life, like to be a good provider, a good husband, a good wife, a good member of the dues-paying country club. You know, the, the, they were, had put away their own creative fulfillment in favor of sacrifices to fit in better to society. And so I, I tell you, I had at one time I re- realized that I'd had something like 11 or 12 different clients come in who were lawyers or doctors or somebody who was making a lot of money. And they would, ha- they would say the same thing to me. They would say, you know, I'm, I'm making three or $400,000 a year and everybody loves me for it. And, you know, I'm the vice president of this and the president of that, but I feel like I'm dying inside. Mm. And when when they talked about that, what they were talking about was a, a lack of connection with their own creative fulfillment, a lack of connection about doing what was creatively nurturing to them, 
a classic example. A fellow came to me who was a very um, successful dentist, and his father had been a very successful dentist, and so it kind of made sense for him to take over the office and all of that. But he was one of those that said he felt like he was dying inside. And I said, well, if you were to do everything the way you wanted to do, what would you do? And he said, well, I'd write poetry. Like I used to love to write poetry. You know, this guy was a kind of a staid looking dentist. And so to suddenly hear this guy say he wanted to write poetry, it was kind of a surprise to me too. And uh, it was like if he'd said, I'd like to ride a red tricycle around, you know, that would have been about as uh, surprising to me. <laughs> And, uh, but we, we worked out finally a compromise. He ultimately sold his practice a few years later, but to, I suggested, look, how long does it take you to really write a poem? And he said, sometimes 10 minutes. So I said, well, let's first start with 10 minutes. Even if you don't finish a poem, write a line of it, but put it on your calendar tomorrow that at certain time you're going to work for 10 minutes on a poem. Well, that little 10 minutes changed everything because soon it led to 20 minutes and 30 minutes and an hour. And pretty soon he was back creatively engaged, not only with poetry, but by creative writing. And I made this suggestion, which he considered radical. He'd never thought of it before, but it was so obvious to me. I said, why don't you do some creative writing around what the experience of being a dentist is? Like, I don't know anything about what, the, what that's all about. But I'd be interested to read some creative piece on what the ups and downs and problems and joys and everything uh, about being a dentist is. So here he branched off into a whole different type of creative writing. The important thing, Neil, is that it doesn't have to be poetry. It doesn't have to be dance. It could be journaling. It could be cooking. It's something that you focus on that has the capacity to surprise you. Mm. That's the key requirement. It's got to have, like if you're cooking a soup, suddenly an inspiration occurs. Oh, maybe I'll put some basil in it this time and try that out. So it's something that has the capacity to make you go, oh, wake up. And that little moment of awakening is a sacred space for people, especially after 40. Yeah. Yeah, and I liked your suggestion in the book that someone literally just take 10 minutes and honor that that capacity for creativity first thing in the day before you check your email, before you see who texted you at one in the morning, hopefully no one, but before you do all that to, to take a moment to honor that part of yourself um, and see see what that generates for you. It sounds like it can actually generate a lot. I think it's the generator, especially at midlife and beyond. You know, up until age 40, you're kind of working on, like Eric Erickson says, in your 20s, you experiment. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. In your 50s, you enjoy your life. And I hope we enjoy our lives the whole time. But generally speaking, people often don't have that kind of sit back and ah, kind of feeling until they're up in their 50s or 60s, because up until then, you're busily putting all the blocks together and getting out of all the boxes or, or that life puts us into, you know, the, the family box, the school box, the health box, you know, getting all those things working for you. And um, 
getting all your boxes in a row. So we, we need to occupy boxes a lot of times up until we're 40 or so, and then the urge becomes to jump out of those boxes and invent something brand new. Yeah, and I, as I was reading the book, I felt like, you know, this would be good preventative medicine for someone younger. I, I obviously, I see the value for, for older um, people, certainly in terms of like where you're at in your life. And at the same time, I can't tell you the number of people that I talk to who are having a midlife crisis in their 20s and 30s because they've just been going through the motions, doing what they thought they were supposed to do, and suddenly having this like, what is this all for moment? That can really happen at any point, um, especially with the pace of today's life, I think. Yes, I think you're putting your finger on something very important when you say the pace of life, because I mean, if you think about all the ways people have of communicating with each other now that they didn't have 30 or 40 years ago, like to make a telephone call, you had to, if you were in your car, you had to pull over to the corner and go into a little booth and <laughs> put a bunch of quarters in the box. And so it was a whole different world. Now you can text, you can message, you can call anywhere 24 hours a day. And, um, I was walking down a street in Cusco, uh, uh, Peru a while back when my phone rang and it was my Pilates teacher saying, hey, you aren't here for your appointment. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten to cancel out because I was going to Peru. <laughs> and so I said, well, I'd love to come over, but I'm in Cusco, Peru at the moment. And uh, so, you know, she picks up her phone in Ojai, California and beams me up in, Ojai, in, uh, in Cusco on the other end of the world. And so it's a whole different way of communicating that we have today that we didn't have before. But that is a, a minus as well as a plus, because that means there's more ways for people to be dishonest with each other, you know, that unless you've made a deep commitment to that open-hearted communication with yourself and with your beloved, that act of, of having more and more devices to communicate with is not really a boon. So unless you have the heart stuff on straight and on right, it's hard to make use of your technological innovations in your life. Yeah. There's one thing that I, I'd love to focus on before our time is up. And um, I just want to mention again to everyone, there's so much wisdom in this book. And it's only, I think, about 187 pages. So it's a relatively quick read. And But there's literally thing after thing that you will read and you will think, I want to try that. I want to try that with my partner. I want to, I want to try that out. So, um, and as you heard Gay say, um, these are all things that he and Katie have tried and that's why they're there because they work. So I encourage you to check out the book, try the things. Um, I'd like to take a moment, if we could, to talk about the, uh, another thing that you brought up, which was to have a relationship that's free from blame and criticism. And, you know, we had John Gottman on the show and he talked about the um, four horsemen of the apocalypse, criticism being one of them. And But what I didn't realize in my conversation with him that I found so fascinating in your book was the the way that criticizing creates adrenaline. And while we've actually spoken on the show about dopamine, and I've been kind of an evangelist for getting people to to try oxytocin promoting behaviors and to to get off the dopamine cycle but we haven't even considered adrenaline and what that might be doing so 
Can you talk briefly about the relationship between criticism and blame and adrenaline and maybe some simple shifts that people can make? And what's popping into my head is the, the hmm um, technique. Um, yes. Well, this is a key point because I mentioned earlier that when people leave relationships, one of the main reasons they give for leaving the relationship is they couldn't stand the blame and criticism any longer. And so it is one of the most destructive forces. And I really appreciate uh, John Gottman for bringing that out in his research some years ago. <clears throat> the, uh, let me take a quick sip here. Sure. And while you are, I, I'm reminded of what you said about how people rarely say, oh, I listened to their blame and criticism for 30 years and finally I decided to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you very, have, you very seldom in an argument have the other, other person say, you know, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I think it happened once in my life. Um, but the, the thing about blame is that the moment of blame, if you break it down into its component parts, when you're pointing the finger of blame at another person, you fire off a burst of adrenaline. There's a little bit of glee associated with the moment of making somebody else wrong. Mm. And so you get this burst of adrenaline. And adrenaline is a powerful drug and a very addictive drug. Literally, the chemical is very addictive. And it's also very powerful. If you had enough adrenaline, if you had a little touch of it on your finger and you took a, a lick of it, you'd be running around the room very quickly. The body dispenses it in minuscule doses. But it doesn't take much of it to fire up our bodies, and it fire up, fires up our bodies within a second, I think within a 20th of a second. It's very fast, the chemical production of adrenaline. And so when you blame somebody else, you get that little burst of adrenaline, and it becomes addictive. So we have found the only way to break the addiction is to create a wonder, a wondering inside yourself that replaces the adrenaline. Because wonder, the experience of wonder, the transcendental experience of wonder, actually genuinely wondering, produces, we haven't found the chemical for it, maybe it's oxytocin, I don't know, but we haven't found the chemical yet that really happens the moment you wonder but I'm sure it's there because it's a, something you can deeply feel in your body. So if you catch yourself in the moment of blame and then you go, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what it is in me that's creating this problem. Hmm, I wonder how I'm responsible for this. And if you do that, if you catch yourself right in the moment of blame, you can make a huge jump very quickly. For example, do I have enough, enough time, Neil, to tell a quick story about this? We're at 11.55 or 8.55 your time. Okay, let me tell a, a one-minute story. Okay? okay, great. We are working with a couple. He's totally convinced she's wrong, and they battle it back and forth all the time. She's totally convinced he's wrong. We ask him first to make that wonder shift, to say, hmm, what is it about me that creates this problem over and over again? Because he was always blaming her for 
wanting to leave the relationship or not being there for him. So the moment he shifted to wonder, he realized that he had been scripted to have this problem in relationship because when he was a year old, his mother had left to go off with another man and left his father with four boys to raise. So all his life, he was always hearing these stories about how you can't trust women. Women aren't ever there for you when you need them. And so he'd heard so many of these stories by the time he was four or five years old that he was already a living readiness to be abandoned and to be let down and to be disappointed. And so that one moment of wonder shifted everything because he realized, oh my goodness, this doesn't really have anything to do with my partner. I just project these things on her so forcefully you know, that it keeps happening over and over. So wow. if you keep that in mind, to always look underneath the blame for, hmm, what it is about me that's requiring this problem to keep happening. But you got to make sure it's done in wonder. You can't blame yourself. So it has to be done with that, hmm, that genuine, sincere, what we call a wonder shift. Hmm. Yeah, wow. What a great way to articulate that. And I think you know, someone would recognize that that's quali qualitatively different than suddenly blaming themselves. What am I doing wrong all the time? Yes. Well, hmm, I wonder when I might get you on my show again, because I've just really enjoyed talking to you. And I really appreciate your, your generosity with your time and your wisdom and so much of your contribution to the world on how to make relationships amazing. So thank you so much, Gay, for coming on our show today. Well, good. I very much enjoyed it, Neil, and I'd be delighted to come back on your show anytime. You ask great questions, and I like the uh, kind of open-hearted listening space that you create. Excellent. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. And just to remind everyone, Gay's book, Conscious Loving Ever After, is available on Amazon and in your local bookstore. And I'm going to have links to his site, Hendrix.com, and his book available on my site, so you can come to neilsatin.com slash gay, G-A-Y, and, uh, and that'll get you links to all of the important places um, to get stuff about uh, what Gay and his wife Katie are doing in the world. So thanks again so much, Gay. All right. Thanks, Neil. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.